I was uh, going to talk on education tonight, but um, no. So, uh, but what we're going to do is, um, it was uh, th- this is something that we need to take a look at as um, as a nation, and uh, uh, you guys know what happened this past week. Uh, what on Monday? What we celebrated? Martin Luther King, um, and. You know, this is as I have a dream speech that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And one of the things that I put out this week on my Instagram page uh, was a picture of identical twins, identical, uh, of different color. You can go ahead and Google that. I know it sounds strange. And uh, one of the interesting things in Genesis, uh, it says in 5 that God created the male and female, and thus he created mankind. So it's, there's one race, mankind. And this idea of being judged by the content of your character, not the color of your skin, was a, a fascinating insight. And everybody, like with Lincoln, everybody wants to take credit for somebody who contends for cultural position that has been successful through great blood, sweat, and tears. And so every, every group of people wants to somehow define these leaders uh, to defend their positions as they do with Lincoln and they do with Martin Luther King Jr. There's been arguments back and forth, you know, um, Martin Luther King Jr. was a Republican and others saying, no, he's not. And yet you have this telegram and this is that he wrote, he said, from Selma, Alabama, we deplore the recent occurrences in Selma which exemplify the deprivations of civil and constitutional rights, which are common practice in the South. We in tradition of Lincoln and the fullest expression of the individual rights send our sympathy and moral support to those disenfranchised citizens in the South, uh, University of Michigan, Young Republican Club. And so you, you see this picture where he's, there's, there's communication between him and other party members, but you know, you, you can't really define it. You can't say, where he he rested on this issue, but he was contending, or where he rested as a political position, but in this issue, you know what he was working for. And so tonight, as we're going through a look in the Constitution, we took a look at the 14th Amendment last week when we took a look at immigration, and the 14th Amendment was established uh, to also put teeth and strength behind the 13th Amendment, and then the 15th Amendment we're going to take a look at, 13, 14, 15, all tie in with our nation's history. But I wanted to begin by sharing with you some words of an author. And he says, um, how did the American Revolution change the centuries-old view of slavery? He says, what the American Revolution did was it made slavery, which had been taken for granted in the centuries before this, it made it a, prob- uh, it made it a problem. It caused every state north of Maryland to abolish slavery in one way or another. And then slavery became a minority position And pro-slavery people had to devise justifications for the institutions that they previously hadn't had to. And so the first wave of the so-called scientific racism in the early 19th century was one of the ways in which they did that. That was sort of a post-founding phenomenon, this author writes. And he says, the Constitution doesn't mention slavery in so many words. It always refers to slaves as persons held to service or labor under the laws of a state. More important, the Constitution doesn't mention race at all. Although American slavery was highly race-based, there is nothing about race apart from slavery in the Constitution. 
So the Constitution itself speaks of nothing of race, but it does, in, uh, it does incorporate this idea of being placed under servitude, and it dealt with slavery. Now, of course, people say slavery was race-based, and so thus the Constitution speaks of race, but let's not forget, and you can just take a look at Thomas Sowell and other authors that speak of the Irish slaves that were, actually an Irish slave was cheaper than an African slave because uh, they, they brought them from Great Britain just across the channel, and Irish slaves were very predominant and, and easily accessible. Um, and you can read the history of Irish slavery, etc. But the, the point of, that I'm making tonight, and we're going to build on, is uh, what, what this author says, and I like it so much. He says, um, uh, the founders and authors of the Constitution recognized that slavery was wrong and that it was a denial of fundamental natural rights, but that it was a problem they were stuck with by history and tried to accommodate only as far as they could. It is also true that they, there were free blacks in every state of the Union at the time of the founding, and that the time of the ratification of the Constitution and the rights of those free blacks, their civil rights, the rights of the free blacks, and of course the Irish, had as citizens varied from state to state. In no state were they perfectly equal with other citizens, but to some degree or another, they had at least some of the civil rights of free British-born persons. Therefore, if you look at the most comprehensive statements about the status of free blacks before the Civil War, and, and, and he goes into a, a picture of some of what the author said, and this idea of, I've got some emails here that I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with, they're in my copies, okay. Uh, what I wanted to read to you is, the concept or the mindset of, of humanity, uh, I would say British humanity in the British Empire, was that slavery was accepted. And then in the, in the colonies and then in the newly formed United States of America, the United States, slavery was addressed. And they began, as we've covered in this in the past, with the Three-Fifths Compromise, trying to remove slavery from the warp and the woof of the fabric. But every, every British-born, I wouldn't say every, but most... Uh, British-born citizens or British-born descendants that were American citizens um, struggled with this idea of seeing somebody equal if their color was different. And um, and if you think this difficult, here's um, the Dred Scott decision of 1857, and the Supreme Court answered a question that Congress had evaded for decades, whether Congress had the power to prohibit slavery in the territories the case originated in 1846 when the Missouri slave Dred Scott sued to gain his freedom. Scott argued that while he had been the slave of an army surgeon, he had lived for four years in Illinois, a free state, and Wisconsin, a free territory, and that his residence on free soil had erased his slave status. All nine judges rendered separate opinions, but Chief Justice Robert uh, Taney delivered the opinion that expressed the position of the court's majority his opinion represented a judicial defense of the most extreme pro-slavery position. The chief justice made two sweeping rulings. The first was that Scott had no right to sue in federal court because uh, neither slaves nor free blacks were citizens of the United States at the time the Constitution was adopted, which is wholly inaccurate. There were free black citizens of the United States prior uh, to the, uh, when the Constitution was adopted. So, so that was completely and wholly inaccurate. The chief justice wrote, blacks had been regarded as beings of an inferior order with no rights which the white man was bound to respect. He goes on, he said, 
He declared that any law excluding slaves from the territories was a violation of the Fifth Amendment prohibiting against seizure of property without due process of law. He saw blacks as property. And, and so you're seeing why the, the 13th and 14th Amendments were established. It was a major political miscalculation. Its ruling, the court sought to solve the slavery controversy once and for all. Instead, the court intensified sectional strife, undercut, undercut, um, where did I, I lost it here, undercut, intensified, okay, undercut possible compromise solutions to the issue. This Dred Scott decision is one of the main things that sent us into the Civil War. It was a vile and terrible, and, and most Supreme Court justices today say that they got that completely wrong. This is what he wrote. In the opinion of the court, the legislation and histories of the times and the language used in the Declaration of Independence shows that neither the class of persons who had been imported as slaves nor their descendants, whether they had become free or not, were then acknowledged as part of the people nor intended to be included in the general words used in that memorable instrument, speaking of the Constitution. They had for more than a century before been regarded as beings of inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race either in social or political relations, and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect, and that the Negro might justly, justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. He was, brought, he was bought and sold and treated as ordinary article merchandise and trafficked uh, whenever a profit could be made by it. The opinion was at the time fixed and universal in the civilized portion of the white race. This is the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Anybody nauseated yet? No one, we presume, supposes that any change in public opinion or feeling in the relation to this unfortunate race in the civilized nations of Europe or in this country should induce the court to give the words of the Constitution a more liberal construction in favor than they were intended to bear when the instrument was framed and adopted. And upon a full and careful consideration of the subject, the court is of opinion that upon the facts stated in the plea in abatement, Dred Scott was not a citizen of Missouri within the meaning of the Constitution of the United States and not entitled as such to sue in its courts. We proceed to inquire whether the facts relied by the plaintiff entitled him to his freedom. The acts of Congress upon which the plaintiff relies declares that slavery and involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, shall be forever prohibited in all part of the territory ceded by France. Goes through this whole picture, but basically what he's saying is, this man has no right to be a U.S. citizen because he is less than human, and he has been considered property and will be considered property, as will all blacks. And now we lost 650,000 people on a field of battle as a result of this. I need to organize my notes a little bit, and I apologize that I have to make you subject to this misery, but I wanted to find something of great importance for you, so just bear with me. I've got all these emails in my... Sorry, I don't know how these emails got into my stuff. There we go, perfect. Oh, where... oh here it is. I don't have it. I thought I did, but I don't. Abraham Lincoln in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, um, and it was uh, uh, 1858 in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And if I had it here, I'd read it to you, but I don't. Maybe they're finding it for me as I'm speaking. But in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, one of the things that Lincoln said, which was fascinating, is that he spoke... um, he spoke in relation to uh, blacks in the United States, and you have to understand this. The culture in America 
Abraham Lincoln, and I'll pull up the words for you maybe next week, but this is what he said. He said, America, he said, I'm I'm torn, basically. I'm going to give you a, a synopsis. He says, I'm torn. I see the institution of slavery is unjust. But the mindset and the prejudice of America would never tolerate the inclusions of blacks in society. Now, though I see, and he pointed to the woman taking care of his room, the the chambermaid, a black woman. He said, though I see that there is an injustice to declare her a slave, I would by no means ever consider marrying her. And the entire room erupted in applause and laughter. This This is Abraham Lincoln. Frederick Douglass, the first black man ever welcomed to the White House, not as a slave and not as a servant, but as a human being, said of Abraham Lincoln, basically he said, he is a man subject to the same prejudice as all white people. However, he is a man who is sympathetic to the black cause and whose heart is changing. And the very last directive and the very last speech, I should say, that Abraham Lincoln gave before he was assassinated in Ford's Theater in 1865, April 14th, he said that he was fighting, and he declared we need to increase the rights of blacks in the South for the purpose of voting. And he was striving towards that measure. And as you see the progression of his eight years in office, you see a man who saw slavery as unjust, but then came to see blacks as equal in mankind. But it was such a profound cultural shift that even as he's speaking to a sympathetic audience, no one in that audience would ever agree to interracial marriage. It was, it was, a, it, it was not acceptable. And, and when Abraham Lincoln makes that comment, everyone laughs that I wouldn't make her my wife because no one would have ever considered that something even humanly possible, let alone something to even consider And so here you have a great civil war that is enacted on on our nation's soil where 650,000 people die in a field of battle to set slaves free. The 13th Amendment is established in 1865 of January, neither slave nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to the jurisdiction. Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Let's stop for a moment. So they've ended slavery, yes? They've ended slavery. Now you, you have all these folks who had never been educated. They were all slaves on a plantation, never learned how to read, never learned how to write. And now they're going to be thrust into society as as free men and women. What's missing in Article 13, in Amendment 13 of the U.S. Constitution Bill of Rights? What's missing? You've given them freedom, but what is lacking? Huh? Equality, education. Do you see anything about the ability to vote? Does anyone have the right to vote? Are they considered citizens? Does it even address that? Hey, you get your freedom. Great. Now what? 
So the 14th Amendment comes about, all persons born of naturalized in, or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdictions thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. This was established for the sake of saying you are a U.S. citizen to all freed blacks. And so this is done. But then what occurs after that? Racial marriage is still considered a taboo. Um, the 13th and 14th Amendment didn't include voting. There was nothing in either of those amendments for social equality. And, and what occurred in the South? What's the first thing they did in the South? When they started to try to give them voting rights and like, what they start to do? Literacy test, poll tax, uh, separate but equal status, segregation, black drinking fountain, white drinking fountain. Yes? So segregation started to occur. They had segregated theaters, restaurants, railroad cars. They didn't include the right to marry outside of your race. By the way, my daughter Molly is married to Micah. Micah is half black. Micah's parents, uh, Micah's father's black, is maybe Cherokee involved there too. His mother's white. My grandson, Oliver, and my granddaughter, Liberty, would both be considered mixed race, which in this time, that day and age, I would be, I, I would be an anathema. I'd be ostracized in a community. Lincoln couldn't even embrace that. It, it wasn't long ago. We go 50 years back, and I'd be kicked out of the... I, I certainly wouldn't be the pastor of this church, let alone a city councilman. My, what my daughter had done to marry Micah Stevens would be so socially unacceptable. Thank you, dear. Would be socially unacceptable. Oh, here it is. Perfect. This is Lincoln. 1858... He says, I will say then that I am not nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of white and black races. This is Lincoln. And there was applause after he said that. That I am not nor never or nor ever have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator, his words, not mine. And inasmuch as they cannot so live while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. I say upon this occasion, I do not perceive that because the white man is to have the superior position, the Negro should be denied everything. I do not understand that because I do not want a Negro woman for a slave, I must necessarily want her for a wife to cheers and laughter in the room. Abraham Lincoln. My understanding is that I can just let her alone. I am now in the 50th year, and I certainly never have had a black woman for either a slave or a wife. So it seems to me quite possible for us to get along without making either slaves or wives of Negroes. I will add to this that I have never seen, to my knowledge, a man, woman, or child who was in favor of producing a, a, a perfect equality, social and political, between Negroes and white men. 
I recollect of but one distinguished instance that I have ever heard of so frequently as to be entirely satisfied of its correctness, and that is the case of Judge Douglas's old friend Colonel Richard Johnson, laughter. I'll also add to the remarks I have made, for I am not going to enter large upon this subject, that I have never had the least apprehension that I or my friends would marry Negroes if there were no law to keep them from it. Laughter again. But as Judge Douglas and his friends seemed to be in great apprehension that they might, if there were no law to keep them from it, to roars and laughter, I give him the most solemn pledge that I will to the very last stand by the law of this state, which forbids the marrying of white people with Negroes. I will add one further word, which is this, that I do not understand that there is any place where an alteration of social and political relations of the Negroes and the white man can be made except in the state legislature. And it's a, a long speech that he did in, in contending with, with uh, in the Lincoln-Douglas debate, Senator Douglas. And I do want to add that um, there was no other way, quite honestly, that he could have contended for the abolition of slavery without being culturally relevant. Um. You know, one of the interesting things about my relationship with Bishop Broderick Huggins, he's a lifelong Democrat, I'm a lifelong Republican. He got a lot of grief for endorsing me in the state assembly run, uh, got, got beat up pretty good. Faced some pushback in our own congregation when he came and preached here, and I got a little pushback when I went and preached over there. And culturally, he's in a world that I know very little of, and culturally, I'm in a world he knows very little of. And the entire time that he's been the pastor of St. Paul's Baptist Church, we're the only white church on the hill that's ever invited him to come and speak. There's a divide there. And as we spend time together, we start to understand this cultural divide. And one of the things that we commented on is I always ask him, why aren't you more pro-life as, as an evangelical black minister? And why is it that over 90% of the black evangelicals vote for Obama and 85% of white evangelicals voted opposite? And we're pro-life and you're, you're opposed to homosexuality and yet the, the white evangelical church doesn't hold the same position that the black evangelical church holds to. They're very anti-homosexual. They're somewhat pro-life, but certainly not outspoken. And the white evangelical, and, and they vote completely different. Why is that? And, we, and both can give a defense for their position biblically. Well, I'll, I'll share with you what we've learned together as brothers. Separated from our mother's womb. One of the things he said to me is he says, you know, there's only one way out in the inner city for a black woman who's pregnant and that's Planned Parenthood. He said, if the white churches want to give us a way out, we'll take it. I mean, you're so pro-life, but you have no concern about the inner city. How many white churches go into the inner city to help? That hit me hard. And, and as we went back and forth, I said, why are you so opposed? I mean, so vehemently opposed, and, and this isn't to say that my position is soft, but why are you so vehemently opposed to homosexuality and, and the statement that you see in the evangelical black churches? And I'm not here to, I'm here to understand. So if you're taking offense to statements, ease up and grow a little bit. Yes? 
You get to learn something if you listen and not get uptight. He said, they want to equate their sin with the color of my skin. So what is all this? So what you see here in the 14th Amendment, no right to vote. The opening of segregation laws that were pretty heavy. So they established the 15th Amendment. The right of citizens in the United States to vote shall, be, shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, previous condition of servitude. Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Anyone ever heard of Plessy versus Ferguson? 1896. Can someone tell me what it is? Separate but equal. Separate but equal. As long as as it's equal, we can keep it separate. Now, this is an amendment to the Constitution. The others was an act of Congress. Plessy versus Ferguson was a, a ruling. And as you see, this idea of separate but equal, by the 1870s, after the 15th Amendment had been established, by the 1870s, whites began to retreat from this idea of giving blacks access as citizens of the United States, this idea of voting. And so what ended up happening, and some of you covered it, especially in the South, Southern Democrats started to establish poll taxes. They started to establish literacy tests. So they would hinder blacks from coming to vote. And, and by the way, if you just look at it, early on, the majority of blacks were voted Republican, and then it was about 18, or excuse me, 1964 with, with Truman, where it was a complete switch, and, and the drop-off in supporting the Republican Party went straight to, to the Democratic Party. Johnson. Yeah, Johnson, but it started with Truman. Take a look at it. And with, the, with, with Johnson and the Civil Rights Act and all these other things that started to establish, it was interesting what occurred, because as separate but equal, uh, there was only one... There was only one judge who dissented in the Plessy versus Ferguson, and he said this. In the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior dominant ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful, the arbitrary separation of citizens on the basis of race while they are on a public highway is a badge of servitude wholly inconsistent with the civil freedom and the equality before the law established by the Constitution. It cannot be justified upon any legal grounds, just as Harlan was a lone dissenter in Plessy versus Ferguson. And he stands in opposition to it because he said, the Constitution is colorblind. So what does the Constitution allow according to our mission statement, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights among those being life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. It's not based on your race, yes? So we all have equal access to opportunity, but are we all guaranteed an equal outcome? No. But if you are a race of people whose entire history in the United States has been such that you have faced poll taxes, literacy tests, Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but equal, 
You've been given the 13th Amendment, but not the 14th. Then you get the 14th, but you had to have the 15th. Then you get the 15th, and then you get the Plessy versus Ferguson. And first you get the three-fifths compromise. Anyone tracking that so far? And what would that do to an individual when you see, okay, we're created equal. We have equal opportunity, but not equal outcome. And so what ends up happening is in the, from the 1890s to the 20th century, it's created this second class of citizen. Now, what was a regionalized issue in the South, all sudden changes with what they called the Great Migration. So blacks in the South began to migrate towards industry in the North, Chicago, all the big cities. They started going into the eastern seaboard of the northern states. And this Great Migration occurred in the earliest 20th century from the rural South to the North, and then the race issue was no longer regional, became national. And then you had World War I and World War II. And World War I and World War II, all of a sudden, the races were open because you were fighting with anybody who was next to you. And this fed into what we call the civil rights movement. And one of the things that was pretty intense is that after World War II, the mindset of Americans, much like Abraham Lincoln and all the folks, and I remember one person my mom lived with, she died in her 90s. Uh, her, her name was Alice Crilly, Dr. Alice Crilly. And I've shown you the hat that her uh, grandfather wore and that her grandmother was an eyewitness of the Gettysburg Address. Remember? I shared that with you. Alice was very prejudiced. When I told her, yeah, when I told her that my daughter Molly was marrying Micah, she said, I do not believe in, I do not believe in mixed race marriages. Now, her grandfather fought for the North. She was from Pennsylvania, and, and she said, oh, I love blacks. We had a black maid, and I, I wanted an ironing board just like Millie had, and I would do what Millie did. And she's trying to tell me that I love blacks. There just should be no mixed marriages. I got to tell you, my... My grandson just got picked up with a modeling agency. He's a good-looking kid. And I'll tell you what, in all of your bloodline, everybody's got a little something in there. And one of the things I love about identical twins of different color, and again, you can Google it, is that there is one race. It's mankind. And there's a transition, and it's occurring, and we're struggling with it, and we're having a problem with it. But what happens is, World War II occurs. Now, you had Margaret Sanger. You had um, Woodrow Wilson. They were all what were called, they, they believed, which was a very common thing, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, eugenicists. Do you know what eugenics, eugenics is? Yes. Wanting to take out the inferior races and breeding mankind. Uh, Charles Lindbergh. It, it was a very common mindset of humanity. And so in World War II, this this was taken to its utmost level under the fascist dictator Adolf Hitler. And it, it soured mankind when they began to open up all the concentration camps and they saw the experiments and it changed the psyche of Americans. But you know, it wasn't Adolf Hitler who was all that, he was, he was awful, but it wasn't him. There was others who were bad. Look, look at this. You know, Jesse Owens, he said, Hitler didn't snub me. It was FDR who snubbed me. 
The president didn't even send me a telegram. Jesse Owens said, Adolf Hitler didn't snub me. He waved at me. I was going to go speak to the radio audience. He had to go back. We had a limited time. He acknowledged me. I acknowledged him. He didn't snub me. And they put it in the papers all across, you know, because they were contending. He said, the one who snubbed me was FDR. FDR, in a sense, had the same concept. He, he, like any white male of the time, there was this concept of eugenics. And he had a progressive theory of entitlements, FDR did. And when we covered that before, this idea that we're all guaranteed these basic rights. Do you remember that, FDR's basic rights? And in this, it was called this concept of entitlement. You know what entitlement is? The guarantee not of equal opportunity, but equal outcome. And the mindset of America changes. And this, if you want to read a, an interesting book, it's called The American Dilemma, American Dilemma by Gunnar um, uh, uh, Myrdal, 1944. He was a Swedish sociologist. And he talked about this project of social engineering, not just equal opportunity, but equal outcome. Now, this is where we get a problem. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Martin Luther King Jr., the boycotts began, Brown versus the Board of Education. Segregation of schools became non-permissible. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voter Rights Act of 1965, all this is taking root. America's examining its racial mindset. Um, Congress... Um, starts to regulate commerce between the states by using Title VII of the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act. And uh, they start to, to establish with private employers this concept of, are you ready? Affirmative action. It goes from equal rights to equal outcome. Individual rights protected by the government for people to be treated as individuals without regard to race, whereas it has now become something more. It was a demand for equal outcomes on the basis of race. And as a result of this, government agencies began to redefine equality into a system we know today as affirmative action. Affirmative action was initially an executive order established by John F. Kennedy. And what he was saying is, not only, not only are you not to discriminate, you need to take affirmative action to make sure that minorities are employed. And it was this concept of just, just take action to remedy this situation and this, this problem and this scourge on our nation. And affirmative action as a term arose out of this executive order. American presidents previously had issued this, uh, and they had required government contractors to agree not to discriminate on the basis of race. And um, government contractors were required to keep statistical records. It was no longer a movement of equal treatment of individuals on the basis of race, but rather it was on the outcome, on the numbers of members of a race that you employ. And so all of a sudden, this is happening. Johnson does it. Nixon does it. Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, um, Title VII, Civil Rights Act, 1964, all of a sudden, this just starts taking off in America, and then it goes into admission tests. If the admission test is, is favors one race over another, uh, higher education. Do you guys remember busing in 1974? I was 10 years old. And we had our own independent school district, so we were not subject to busing, and we lived on Coronado, which was an island, so I, was, you know, I, I, I had, didn't have to participate in that. But all throughout San Diego County, I remember people being bused all the time. And so you had now this push for diversity. So where does that bring us today? 
it's no longer about equal access. Now it's equal outcome. And here's, here's what happens. Equal outcome is social engineering. And now we have problems. Because what occurs with equal outcomes? Unequal outcomes. It's just a reverse of discrimination. Other things start to occur. See, what was so powerful about Justice Harlan's statement is the Constitution's colorblind. We, we have equal opportunity and strive for that. But equal outcome is socialism. From each according to his ability to each according to his need. I take from you to give to them. And the problem with that is that those in power decide what the equal is. Right? It can swing the other way. It can swing the other way. And in addition, if we consider equal outcome, don't just stop with race or gender or sexual preference. It's the easiest way to dominate another class of people is to have the government fully behind and demanding equal opportunity. Instead of looking at everybody as Americans. And so here we are. I mean, one of the things that Bishop Huggins and I are coming to terms with, and I said, you know, I think you're struggling with the homosexual community because they're getting equal outcome too. Yours was a struggle over generations, enslavement, on and on and on. And, and, and this is something that is for, you know, hundreds of years, a struggle. But this idea of equal outcome, anyone can employ it. The Constitution's colorblind. Why not revisit it and just say, all men are created equal, instead of defining us by race, gender, sexual preference. So the point I want to make tonight is we are re-examining ourselves as a nation. And as we took a look at these um, federal organizations like the EPA and, and others that have an executive, legislative, and judicial side to them that aren't elected by the sovereign, we the people. And then the question I pose to you is, how many people want the thalidomide babies and have the Grand Canyon filled with sewage? And you said no. And well, do we need the EPA? And some said yes. Do we, do we need these different organizations? And really what it is, is we're, we're, we're trying to work it out as a people. But I have to tell you something. I am sure happy to be standing in front of you, the grandfather of a mixed-race grandson and a mixed-race granddaughter and, and a mixed-race son-in-law. And there's no issue in our culture. If there is, it's not my onus, it's yours. And yet 40 years ago, and even in my mother's generation, that wouldn't have been acceptable. So something's improved. But the idea is to go back to the basics and re-examine who we are as a people and realize the gift we've been given in the Constitution. Just go back to it and start acting like you, you, you have to have a moral contingency 
Only a moral people can govern a republic. Otherwise, it turns from a constitutional republic into an oligarchy where you can now declare who you are based on your minority and you have equal opportunity and you have all the power of the federal government to establish that. So I want to show you a video. You may or may not like it. It's five minutes long and then at the end we'll open up for question and answer and you guys can yell at me. Did, did you, do you have it? It's another Prager video. See if you like it. Racism still a major problem in America? <laughs> President Barack Obama certainly thinks so. He said that racism is in our DNA. Really? If racism is in our DNA, doesn't that mean it's immutable, unchangeable? But America has changed, and dramatically so. In 1960, 60% of Americans said they would never vote for a black president. Almost 50 years later, the black man who said racism is in America's DNA was elected president. And four years later, re-elected. That's only the most obvious example of racial progress. There are many others. Take interracial marriage. As William H. Fry of the Brookings Institution wrote, sociologists have traditionally viewed multiracial marriage as a benchmark for the ultimate stage of assimilation of a particular group into society. Black-white marriages were still illegal in 16 states until 1967. And a 1958 Gallup poll found that only 4% of Americans approved of black-white marriages. Today, that number is 87%. In 1960, of all marriages by blacks, only 1.7% were black-white. Today, it's 12% and rising. Now, what about racial profiling and abuse of blacks by police? Doesn't that prove that racism remains a major problem? In the summer of 2014, Ferguson, Missouri became ground zero for this accusation when a white policeman shot and killed an unarmed black teenager. While a Department of Justice investigation of the incident cleared the officer of any wrongdoing, it did accuse the city's police department of racial bias. But what was the Justice Department's report's most headline-grabbing stat? The gap between the percentage of blacks living in Ferguson, 67%, and the percentage of those stopped by police for traffic violations who are black, 85%, an 18-point discrepancy. Racism, right? Not so fast. Blacks comprise 25% of New York City, but account for 55% of those stopped for traffic offenses, a 30-point discrepancy, far bigger than that of Ferguson. Why isn't the NYPD, a department that is now majority-minority, considered even more institutionally racist than the Ferguson PD? The answer is, you cannot have an honest discussion about police conduct without an honest discussion of black crime. Though blacks are 13% of the population, they commit 50% of the nation's homicides. And almost always the victim is another black person, just as most white homicides are against other whites. In 2012, according to the Center for Disease Control, police killed 123 blacks, while, by the way, killing over twice that many whites. But that same year, blacks killed over 6,000 people, again, mostly other blacks. What about traffic stops? Unlike when responding to dispatch calls, police officers exercise more discretion when it comes to traffic stops. Therefore, racist cops can have a field day when it comes to traffic stops 
right? Actually, no. The National Institute of Justice is the research agency of the Department of Justice. In 2013, the National Institute of Justice published a study called Race, Trust, and Police Legitimacy. Three out of four black drivers admitted that they were stopped by the police for a legitimate reason. Blacks, compared to whites, were on average more likely to commit speeding and other traffic offenses. The Institute wrote, seatbelt usage is chronically lower among black drivers. If a law enforcement agency aggressively enforces seatbelt violations, police will stop more black drivers. The NIJ's conclusion, these numerical disparities result from differences in offending. In other words, not because of racism. Similarly, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration also found that blacks violate traffic laws at higher rates than whites. In every offense, whether it's driving without a license, not wearing a seatbelt, not using a child safety seat, or speeding. Is there still racism in America? Of course there is. But racism is not in America's DNA. Recent history and a lot of research and data prove it. As liberal Harvard sociologist Orlando Patterson said, America is now the least racist white majority society in the world has a better record of legal protections of minorities than any other society, white or black, offers more opportunities to a greater number of black persons than any other society, including all of those of Africa. Patterson, by the way, is black. I'm Larry Elder for Prager University. Now, one of the things to be um, pointed out before we go into the question and answer is, why is there so much black-on-black violence? Why is 50% of all killings in the black community? Now, when you have equal access and equal outcome, who is the one that enforces equal outcome? The federal government. So a government big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take everything you have, and then you become dependent as opposed to independent. And, and we, we look at an entire segment of America representing 13% that has been a, a, a political class that both parties have used for their benefit. And it is it has done an, an awful injustice to the black community. Most black families are are single parent in some respects. Fathers are absent in the black community. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. And so this is this is one of those things that we really have to be mindful of. But you know what? When I had Bishop Huggins come and speak, I got a letter. I got a letter of why would you allow that man in our church? Yeah. Now that's one out of, I don't know, 400, 500 people, but it's still there. It's still there. And this is stuff that we're being challenged by week in and week out. This is life. But the beauty of it is, do you respond by destroying a constitution that has blessed us for 200 and over 240 years? And do you create a class of people that has greater rights than another class of people? Do you turn it into one of these oligarchies or do we go back to this idea that we're all created equal? And as a people, we have to be a moral people if the republic is going to survive. So we have to be challenged by these tough questions. We have to look at cultures that are different than us and assimilate and step out into uncomfortable areas. How many people who have attended this fellowship have been blessed by Bishop Huggins coming and have been challenged 
I mean, I got to tell you, I realized for the first time, I think I had rhythm. <laughs> but, but the only rhythm I had was watching Bishop Huggins' wife, and I was just following her. And the music was, was, a, it was, a, it was a cultural distinction between the two of us. But it was so profound because it was, it was blended. And we saw this remarkable gift in our community where we both grew. That's what has to occur. So with that, we've got uh, 12 minutes, and I'll answer questions, and I'm sure you guys have some thoughts. And it's not something that I'm deeply educated in, but it, you know, I could have gotten some of these things wrong, but I'm doing my best trying to walk through it, and hopefully it challenged us. Yeah, back there. Yeah. Well, the energy was the fact that he preached and not me. Yeah. Now his, it, I, me too, and, and, and some of you may or may not know this, but Bishop Huggins' uh, son was shot by uh, officers in, in Alameda. Um, shot him over 15 times, I believe. He was beaten up by a black, uh, white gang, left for dead. He had every reason to... I mean, we, we were suspect of each other the minute we met. And it's taken a lot of work for our lives to be blended. You take that up with Bishop Buggins. It was awful. And it's still... It's a pending lawsuit. No, he died. His son was killed. Yep. Yep, right here. The question is, did I see the documentary 13? No, I did not. Okay. Any questions or comments tonight? When he came, it was invigorating and awesome. Yeah, the music. Our three guitars were like, what happened? <laughs> no, John knows what he's doing. He's, we're blessed. But yeah, really, it's, it's fascinating. Um, okay, over here, and then I'll... Yeah, Billy? Mm-hmm. And uh, when affirmative action uh, came in, uh, the A&P had the predominance of white people that had uh, moved up. Promoted. Yep. And uh, as a result of affirmative action, there were, there were blacks being, and women uh, being uh, leapfrogging uh, people that might have gotten the promotion because they were black comment, but it's, a, it's, a, it's what you're saying, basically. Yeah. What can happen with affirmative action? Interesting thing about uh, um, affirmative action, it was an executive order, and when Reagan came into office in 1981, he could have had the ability to um, do away with affirmative action, but he kept it in place because it had become um, a, um, a corporate mindset 
that had changed the culture of America that, you know what, we do have to rectify some of this. I don't know if you guys know Title IX. Um, uh, I was a a scholarship athlete at Fresno State University for swimming and water polo. I still hold the records there, and I laugh about it because I hold all the records at Fresno State for my events because men's swimming is gone based on Title IX. They got rid of it, so I still hold the records. But but these are things that have changed our culture, and, you know, women's basketball never was there before. Now it's there. You know, some of it's been positive and was forced on us, and others, I mean, it, it has been a challenge. But as a people, as a nation, as a constitutional republic, we can't stray away from this idea that it's it's equal opportunity, not equal outcome, but in the same regard as men and women who stand before our God— we are created in his image, created equal. We need to operate that. Only a moral people can govern a republic, as John Adams said. So we're challenged. Government forced it on many. Um, I remember when I was at Tulane University, I was a freshman, gotten a scholarship there. I'm in the uh, athlete's dining hall. It's in the summertime in Louisiana. It's humid, hot. I was a Southern California boy. I'd been raised in Coronado, 98% white. I, we saw one black guy in my entire high school. And, and I'm, I'm now in the deepest south. It's, I'm, I'm in the stairwell waiting to get up to the food line, and it's not moving. And I'd met my new roommate. His name, well, he's from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. His name was Robert. I won't give you his last name. And he's this tiny little guy. He's about that, that big on me. He's a breaststroker on the team. And he's behind, or no, he's in front of me. And, and uh, when I'd walked into my dorm, I saw his Bible open. I'm like, hey, a Christian, this is going to be great, you know? And, uh, and we're, we're walking for our first meal together and we're in this stairwell and there's this big giant black football player in front of us. I can tell he's a football player. He's, he's got his own zip code. He's applying for statehood. He's big. I mean, it's darkening the stairwell and, and we're sweating and there's no air conditioning in the stairwell waiting to get in the meal line. It's not moving. And I go, man, I wonder what the holdup is. And Robert Allison, little tiny guy, I just said his last name. Thanks, Rob. He's right here. And he goes, it's probably some dumb nigger. That's the first time I'd heard that word in that context. And this guy turns around and looks at him and goes, what'd you say? And this little guy, he goes, I said, and he repeated it to his face. I'm a California boy. I'm like, what is going on here? I go, fellas, hey, calm down. I said, I, I, he goes, hey, I'm Rob. You know, I'm like stepping in trying to resolve this. He goes, I don't need your help. I go, you just had your Bible open. What is up with you? And it was, it was this tension in the stairwell. And it was just baffling to me. It was, it was I'd, I'd never experienced that. Calm down and resolve, but that was 1982. So, yes, back here. Is it my opinion that affirmative action is fundamentally unconstitutional? Yes. Has it created a moral change in our country? Yes. Is it, if it's extended, will it produce, by social engineering, as Thomas Sowell says, um, a reverse discrimination? Yes. So as a people, we have to examine our life. We have to examine these things and say, okay, why was this placed in? What was the 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 deficiency, what were the things that occurred this to happen? Cause and effect. But we have a system of government designed that were created equal. If we treated each other that way, there wouldn't be a usurpation 
of dominance and forcing. Are you following what I'm saying? Having, having the position of being opposed to affirmative action? Yeah, yeah it, would be the, it would probably be the same as Lincoln at the Lincoln-Douglas debate. It, it, even if his conviction were different than what he had written, like personal, but he just knew this is not going to fly. So there's, there's always going to be folks working towards a direction. I, all I'm simply saying is I would like to see us as a people realize that this is a great gift that our founders gave us. The, the Constitution is colorblind. And if we as people started acting that way, we'd be a lot better off. That's what I'm saying. Does that help? You got to raise your hand. Yes. I'll get to you. Graduate high school, 1941. How old, how old are you, Jim? How old are you? So, so you can teach an old dog new tricks, right? <laughs> uh, here, and then we'll go back here, and then we'll come up. Yes. I, I, I'm just traveling the country and spending time and like with Bishop Huggins and the like, there is a, a desperate need to reestablish the black family in America. And, um, and the social, that has been one of that. That's been one of the problems of social engineering is that it has, in my estimation, destroyed the black family. And, and I think as, as a nation, we, we have to work. I, I think the church has to work at remedying that. So here, and then we'll go here. Yes. Yeah. Your hand's up. I see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
affirmative action is still in the culture, and it's still uh, followed by corporate entities, and you still have quotas that need to be met. That's still there. I'm not sure w- what you're speaking to, but affirmative action is still in place. So it was never repealed? Not that I know of. Yeah, not that I know of. I haven't heard of Yeah, here. So, um, and I don't want this in your article. I'll just tell you personally. Um, Bishop Huggins was unaware of Margaret Sanger. I said, take a look at it. And um, and and the disproportional amount of abortions in the in ethnic communities, meaning non-white, is unbelievably high. Though it's thirteen percent of the population, uh, they represent over forty percent of, of abortions, or thirty-six percent of abortions. So basically, Planned Parenthood is killing the black community and, and had, had Roe v. Wade not been enacted. And they, you know, and, and the idea of Roe v. Wade was a world of wanted children will make a world of difference. And at the time that Roe v. Wade was enacted, there were a hundred thousand child abuse cases in the United States annually. And now we've been doing this since 1973. So we're what, 40, 45 years into it, 35 years into it. Do I have my math wrong? 40, 45 years into it. And it's the number still at a hundred thousand abuse cases, but that's not a year that's weekly. And so we've had we've had 45 years of wanted children, and we abuse has still gone through the roof. And and the idea is, what is it? And and for those of you who are pro-choice, you know, I I I face this debate all the time. What is it? I mean, that's really the question. What is it? What is in the in the mother's womb? What is it? And people say, well, it's not a baby. Well, why? Because it's size. It's too small. So you're telling me a smaller human being is less valuable than a larger human being? It's its level of development. It's not fully developed. So you're telling me an adolescent is less valuable than a fully grown adult. It's its environment. It's in its mother's womb. So you're telling me that when I'm at home, I'm less valuable when I'm here at the church. And their, their, their strongest argument is their degree of dependence. It's dependent on the mother to live. But I would just simply say, so somebody who's dependent on oxygen or insulin is less valuable than someone who isn't. And so the, the idea is, what is it? Can it be anything other than a human being? Now, granted, what about the life of the mother and what about rape or incest? And that represents less than 1% of 1% of all abortions in the country. And, and the black community is affected by it. The Hispanic community is affected by it. And I think as a minister putting on my pastor's hat, if, if there's a God and we are created in his image and we're... That's got to be examined. It may not be convenient. I'm not telling you it's an easy thing. I, I, it's tough. But in the black community, when you have child after child after child without a father, and there's no way out, and there's no resources coming in the inner city, and the government will set up and give funding and give opportunity and give classes and all that, well, that's, that's why they focus on that. Show white churches coming in there. Show anything that's coming in in private entity that's working in the inner city. Go into Compton and find anybody doing anything in there and developing industry. And that's, 
that's where the moral side of the community comes in. You can't legislate that. That's got to come from a moral people can govern a republic. That's the challenge. That's what hit me. So I don't know if that makes sense, but okay. You've had two questions. Some people haven't had any. Yes. The question is, what is the status of American Indians? They've been treated as wards of the state. It's different than the black community or the Hispanic community. Quite honestly, I'm not well enough educated in that to give you a, a, an answer. But my experience is they, they have been treated as wards of the state. Um, the, the more the federal government oversees your life, the more miserable your life is, quite honestly. Uh, as far as racial quotas for, um, or I, I would say gender equality, um, you know what? You were adversely affected. I've been adversely affected. But we can go back, especially if we we look at the conviction of a culture and say, well, you know what? Alice Crilly, the lady that was, you know, Millie was the the maid. Alice Crilly was the first woman at the University of Pennsylvania to get a doctorate. And she said, Rob, you have no idea what I had to go through to get that. So I'm looking at both. I'm seeing a woman who is racially prejudiced, and is vehemently committed to gender equality. But yeah, he was, his comment was, "I was blessed not to be admitted." Yeah. Yes. Last question. It's eight oh six. So. It's in Oxnard. Yeah. White church. On the hill. Kaneha. And he got his, he got his uh, master's degree at Cal Lutheran. The question was, how did I meet him? I'll answer. I'll get you back there. I said last question, but you, you look so fervent about wanting. And it better, it's better be a really good question to end on. So be prepared while I answer this, okay? <laughs> how did I meet him? Um, I was running for office. Uh, Oxnard's plus 21 Democrat. I knew I didn't have a snowball's chance in an HE double toothpick. So I figured I'd just go into the churches and introduce myself. And I walked in with a jar of honey and I said, uh, is a bishop in? And she, she said, yeah, he's in. And I sat down with him and brought him the honey. And actually, I met him the first time, was at a clergy gathering. Um, and I sat next to him. And we kind of hit it off. And I said, I'll come visit you. And I, he's like, yeah. And he even told me, he goes, I didn't think I'd ever see you again. But we hit it off. And from there on out, we've just been, he's just precious. I love that man. Okay. You, did, you had lots of time to prepare. Bring us home. Let's go. Boom. No, 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 no. It's the man here. Who, who's, who's saying? Oh, who, who is, who's talking? I didn't see. All right, do I have to do two questions? Go ahead.
where their pastor who left a very <coughs> well-to-do white community church in Warren Park moved to New York, New Jersey, and started uh, a, a black youth group. I was in the black youth group. I was one of the few white people in the youth group. Uh, most of my black friends were didn't have fathers. Uh, the one that I, uh, friend that I did have, his father was the resident drug dealer. And so uh, what I saw is my church helped a lot of us get out of the city school system in Newark, go to a Christian school called Stonybrook out on Long Island. Uh, and uh, that school helped set up the Oaks Christian School here and set up okay. the curriculum of the Oaks Christian School here in South Oaks. You got to land this plane because I. <laughs> but my point is that 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 pastor going into the inner city, leaving that wealthy church, right. had a great impact in that whole community in Newark, and that's what we need to continue to do with the churches is to encourage them to move into that place that the government has tried to move into. Good, perfect. And I interrupted somebody who was talking. Yes. So are you continuing the series next week? Yes. Two more to go. No. No, Kim. No, you can't. No more. I'm finished. You guys push it. You're always just pushing it. All right, folks. Hey, thanks for enduring tonight. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week.